As we continue on in our uh, summer series in the Psalms, today we find ourselves in Psalm 79. Psalm 79. So I invite you to follow along in your personal Bible or in the bulletin insert or also on the screen. There's three ways uh, that you can follow along, so you are without excuse. Uh, This is today's psalm that we'll teach on. It's also your, your daily psalm to read today. Uh, so we encourage you to, to dwell deeply on this and to hear the word of the Lord as speaking directly to your soul in this moment today. Psalm 79, a psalm of Asaph. O oh God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They've given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food, the flesh of your faithful to the beasts of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. We have become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. How long, O Lord? Will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy Burn like fire. Pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name. For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his his habitation. Do not remember against us our former iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us for we are brought very low. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nations before our eyes. Let the groans of the prisoners come before you. According to your great power, preserve those doomed to die. Return sevenfold into the lap of our neighbors, the taunts which with they have taunted you, O Lord. But we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us once more before we lean into this text. Gracious God, teach us today through a hard, hard, hard psalm. We pray you would open our eyes. Pray that your word would not return void, but will accomplish its purpose. For the glory of your name, as Asaph just said. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. This is a brutal start to this psalm. Do you see those first four verses? Brutal. Horrific, I would say. If you've seen the movie Saving Private Ryan, that's kind of the Israelite metaphor here. The opening scene to Saving Private Ryan is a horrific opening scene depicting D-Day in 1940, in the 1940s. Uh, But this context here is in 586 BC, when the uh, the city of Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonian Empire. They came before them and overtook their city according to the judgment of God, because of Israel's ongoing continual disobedience throughout their nation's history. It feels like this is an us versus them psalm, doesn't it? 
It feels like a Israel versus the nations, because that's what it says. The nations have come in and defiled your inheritance. Why would a God allow Israel to suffer like this? Words that are used to describe the condition of God's people right off the bat are defiled, ruins, food for their enemies, blood flowing like water. They're so dishonored that no one even takes the time to bury their bodies. And then at verse 4, they're taunted, mocked, and derided. So again, this is a horrific start to the psalm. This is, you're reading the first four verses saying, let me... I'm reading the first four verses of this this week saying, how in the world am I going to preach this on Sunday? But this is a a good time to be reminded about the Psalms, that these are heartfelt cries of a real person in a real time in history. Again, the Psalms are the songs, poems, journals, reflections of the soul. And this one is written by, as all these are for the next several weeks, 78 through 84, what will be for the next month and a half. These are all written by a man named Asaph, who was the head of David's choir. So as you think about how horrific the beginning of this psalm is, just think about it as written as a song, because that's actually how it was written. This was written as something to be sung. You may say, this is hard enough to read, much less to sing. Can you imagine if we put this into song form and opened our worship service with this today? So much of me wants to make a Taylor Swift comment here, and I guess I just did, because that's all I've heard this week from people my age is, are you going to the Taylor Swift concert in Foxborough? And I'm sure if I went, there was a song that had lyrics that led you to deep places like this, but I didn't go, so I can't comment further. But what I do know is that verse 5 is the core of this psalm. How long, O Lord? How long is this going to go on? Is this going to continue on? There's got to be an answer to this, God. God, if you are who you say you are, you've got to give an answer to how long. And that's where we can begin to find some resonance and some hope in this psalm. So I'd like to give you just a few points to consider from this for your own life as a reflection of maybe what those folks were feeling in Jerusalem during those days. Number one is this. God is something that maybe at first we don't like him to be, but he is. And that is in verse five, he is a jealous God. And when the minute I say that, I imagine your first response is, I don't like the thought of God being a jealous God. As I leaned into that a little bit this week about what does it mean that God is jealous, because verse 5 does say, you know, it's a question, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? As we lean into that, we have to understand what does it mean when it says that God is jealous? Because when we first hear that, we may, we may apply our own our own interpretation of the word jealousy onto this. Jealousy is seen universally as a negative thing in our world today. Um, and so if we were to describe normal jealousy, this is when you, when you love someone, but something has turned you cold towards that person and made you jealous of them. And so if you think about this in a relational sense, for instance, like if you've been in a relationship and someone has broken that relationship, 
You may turn to hate the person because of that. It's a love that turns angry and you end up giving up on that relationship. And you may be jealous for the fact that you don't have that relationship anymore, but it's, it's fueled by hate. And that's where I think we get our interpretation of jealousy as jealousy being something that actually has hate all throughout it. And if we apply that onto God, we say, well, how could God hate us in that sense? How could God be full of, of a, jealous, a jealousy that is against us? But you see, there's something here that is different about godly jealousy that we, I think, misunderstand at first glance. Tim Keller describes godly jealousy, for instance, as angered love that remains love. As opposed to to normal jealousy that is angered love that turns to hate. Godly jealousy is angered love that stays love. As he says, it's love fighting extinction. Meaning that something has happened in the relationship that would give you every indication to think that love should permanently go away. It should be extinct. But godly love says it's anger that stays with love. And it continues to pursue and to fight for love and to be jealous for you in love. Even when everything would would lead towards the contrary. It's love that doesn't give up. Paul uses the exact phrase in 2 Corinthians 11, talking about the Corinthians. So for our Wednesday Bible study that we're not having this week, uh, in 2 Corinthians, we've been learning a lot about Paul's frustration with the Corinthian church. He, he, He preaches the gospel to them, he goes away, and then The Corinthians are off doing their own things, totally different than what Paul left them to do. And so Paul's writing a letter back to them, expressing frustration, but he's doing so with this. He says in in chapter 11, verse two, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. Meaning I am so concerned about what you're doing and angry about it that I'm pursuing you and urging you not to do it anymore because I'm jealous for you. I'm jealous that you would return back to the things that I, that I told you to do that are good for you. And he's expressing the same heart that we read of God throughout the Old Testament and New Testament. When it says that God is jealous, that means God is for you. He's jealous for you relationally. He is coming towards you because he wants you to come back. He wants what is good for you to return. Exodus 20 is, is the, the Ten Commandments. And in the Ten Commandments, obviously, you know, many of you maybe could name several of the Ten Commandments. But as he's describing the Ten Commandments, we get an understanding here of God's jealousy. It says this in verse 4 of chapter, Exodus chapter 20. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. So he's saying, don't go after foreign gods. Why? For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. He's saying, don't bow down to these other idols because I'm a jealous God. So when we see here that God is a jealous God, he is saying, I want your exclusive relationship. 
When God created humans, he created us exclusively for himself, not so that we would go after other gods or worship other things or give ourselves to foreign idols, but that so we would be exclusively his. And so when we as sinful humans, just like Israel repeated over and over throughout the Old Testament, when we go to other things, some of them could be good things. Some of them could be really blatantly wicked things. Regardless of what it is, if it's other than God and we run after it, God is jealous for us because he knows that whatever that thing is that we are clinging to ultimately will not be for our ultimate good because he knows he is, because he created us. He knows his goodness is for us. God wants your exclusive relational love. He is jealous for the fullness of you. So later on in Exodus, in Exodus 34, God says it again. He says, my name is jealous. He even goes as far to say, I'm a God of compassion and mercy and my my name is jealous. There's a love behind that jealousy that I think you and I miss when we first read that God is a jealous God. He's saying, I'm gonna pursue you deeply. Now what's connected to this in Psalm 79 in verse five is his anger. So Asaph here is expressing how long, O Lord, will you be jealous? Will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Asaph is really concerned that God's jealousy of love is gonna continue on forever and that it's never gonna express itself in some kind of more tangible love. And so God's anger is a result of our sin, meaning that when we sin, there is judgment that comes before that, comes because of that. And that's what Israel is experiencing when Babylon comes and wrecks the city, is it's in the context of the whole Old Testament of repeated idolatry, repeated sin, repeated warning. If you follow me, you will be blessed. If you run away from me, you will fall under the curse of sin, which leads to judgment. And this is the lowest point in the Old Testament story when Israel's hope is seemingly lost through Jerusalem being overtaken. And yet even still, even still, the Bible describes God as slow to anger. And then it goes further in different, a different Psalm, Psalm 30, it describes God as his anger is but for a moment, but his favor is for a lifetime. So yes, we do experience his anger, but his favor is what is for the lifetime. Isaiah 54, eight says this, in overflowing anger for a moment, I, God, hid my face from you. This is one of those moments when Jerusalem is overtaken. In one moment, I hid my face from you out of my overflowing anger for the sin which, with which you are wrecking your life, God is saying. But with an everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your redeemer. So how long, O oh Lord, we are given examples throughout the Old and New Testament that his anger is but for a moment. His grace and love is for a lifetime. How is that so, though? How can that be so? Let's continue on in, verse 70, in chapter 79 with the second point, which the first point was God is something that maybe at first we don't like him to be, which is jealous, but it's actually for our good. The second point is 
all of us long for God to give us something that we actually do all like. And what is that? Verses eight and nine, it's forgiveness. As much as none of us want to be described as jealous or see jealous as a negative turn, all of us, I think, would agree that forgiveness, being forgiven, is a really good thing. And we long for God to give us that. Forgiveness is universally accepted when it's given to you, when you are freed from something, when it benefits you. However, when, it, when you're asked to forgive somebody, that's when it gets a lot more challenging. It's not always seen as a positive to be the forgiver because it costs something to the forgiver. But to be the recipient of it, that's a universally good thing. So the people of God in this psalm are longing for their past sins to not be remembered. They're like, God, please just forget all those past iniquities. They're longing for God's compassion to come to them. The compassion we just read about in the prophet Isaiah. They're longing for their sins to, quote, be atoned for in verse nine. That's a longing each of us should grab onto. I think most of us could read verses eight and nine and directly apply that to our lives today. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us, atone for our sins for your name's sake. Who wouldn't do that when your city is being destroyed? God, do anything to save us, please. Please. I think, it, I think it's interesting, just as we're dwelling here for a moment now, as we talk about the jealousy of God and how you and I maybe have a hard time with that, it doesn't seem like the Israelites struggled with that idea. I think they knew how much God loved them and pursued them because they saw plenty of examples of God pursuing them when they didn't deserve it. And they're, they're crying out for forgiveness here because they really, I think, are realizing that this is their fault, that they brought this on themselves. They brought the anger of God's judgment on themselves because they, they'd been told over and over and over and over, follow my commandments and you will be blessed. Don't follow them and you will not. And so they're saying, our only hope now is that God is who he promises to be, which is a forgiving God. And in your low moments, in your tough moments, may you have that same kind of desperate hope as well, that God is who he says he is. The promise of God's forgiveness is in, throughout the the Old Testament, I'll just point you again to the prophet Isaiah, chapter 43, verse 25. God says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. God says, that is who I am. We long for God to be that. And the people of Israel are longing for it here. This is the hope of every human heart that God would would follow through on that promise to be the forgiver and blotter out of our sins. And that's why when in Mark chapter two, verses five through seven, when Jesus shows up and he's dealing with a paralytic man, Jesus says to him, son, your sins are forgiven. The scribes who are around him, their ears perked up. And it says, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? 
Exactly. Exactly. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And here is the person of Jesus stepping in in a tangible answer to Asaph's cry. Save us, O God. Don't remember our sins anymore. And then here is a man in the flesh saying, your sins are forgiven. And it's God himself in the person of Jesus giving to them the cry of their heart. How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? The last point that I want to get into is the, the third part of this. So if we, if we see God as something jealous, there's maybe something we didn't originally want. And if we long for God to be the forgiver, which is what we all want, we beg for God to deliver something that we all ultimately want, which is justice answers to the hard things that happen in life. Justice. Who is going to do something about the evil and the sin and the problems of our world, about the violence that we're experiencing? God, this is not right. This is not the way it should be. Do something, God. Justice is the desire for all things to be right, for things to be as they should, for someone to do something. And this is God's heart too. Deuteronomy 16 God says, you shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. You shall not accept a bribe. Justice and only justice shall you follow that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. God's heart is justice for things to be put back together and made right. Amos 5, which Martin Luther King Jr. made famous in his I Have a Dream speech said, Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. This is a prayer throughout the the Old Testament, is the prayer for ultimate justice to come. And this psalm pleads for justice to be included. Verses 6 and 7, it's the plea for, for sin to be properly punished and judged. This cry for all sin deserving judgment. Don't let them get away with sin. Verse 10, it's for for seeing God as actually active in the world. You know, he's crying out here, God, show yourself. Because all the nations are saying, where are you, God? Show yourself. Prove yourself as being here, as being active in the world. That's a cry for justice. That's a cry for, for visibility. A cry for the invisible God to show himself as being visible. Verses 10 and 11 uh, show us a, a clear, a cry for a clear purpose to the pain that we go through, both in this life or if we ultimately are killed or dead. So in death, in verse uh, 10, it says, let the avenging of the out, outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nations. He's talking about people that have died because of this. God, is there going to be justice for that? Avenge, avenge their blood or for those who haven't died, but are experiencing hard things in this life. Verse 11, he says, let the groans of the prisoners come before you. Preserve those doomed to die. There's a cry for justice of seeing purpose in our pain, both in life and in death, in trials and in suffering, in martyrdom or in the difficult things we go through. And then ultimately, verse 12 He's crying out for someone to act on their behalf. He says, God, return sevenfold into their lap. 
the taunts that they're taunting you with. Do something, God. We can't do this for ourselves. We can't accomplish this justice. We're too weak. God, you do something. You act on our behalf because we can't do much for ourselves. We need someone stronger, more powerful to act and speak on our behalf. And the Bible's promise throughout the Old Testament narrative and story is God repeats several times. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. God steps into the justice cry and says, I will bring about recompense. I will repay the damage that has happened. Deuteronomy 32, Romans 12, Hebrews 10, all of them say the same quote, vengeance is mine, I will repay, thus says the Lord. And so as we step into the cry for God's justice in this passage, we see that it's, it has to be intimately connected to God's sovereignty over all things. You know, in the book of Romans, it says that, that God's, uh, God works all things together for good, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So somehow even the destruction of the holy city of Jerusalem can be used for the good of us and for the good of God's kingdom. God is mysteriously and deeply in control of all things, even taking into account our freedom and our decisions, even knowing that our sin brings about judgment, but more so knowing that even our helplessness in situations like this bring about his mercy. And so in light of all this, I think actually this psalm has something real to say to us about the church and about Christian community and about groups like us who are gathered on a Sunday like today. Because we began today talking about us versus them, those evil, wicked people destroying our holy city. But as we've walked through this together, I think we're beginning to see more and more that this is, this is about a much bigger thing than Israel versus the nations. Psalm 79 ends kind of strangely with great hope. But we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. It's a strange ending in light of the darkness of this psalm. It ends with great hope to this battered people. How in the world can they say, we will give thanks to you? We will praise your name from generation to generation as they go through this. The answer is, is that they have hope in a remarkable faith in a God that had just allowed them to be violently overtaken. And yet their hope in his saving was not shaken. How can the church today possibly regain that kind of resilience when we feel like the things today can be hard or hopeless? And yet the New Testament points us to Jesus who the book of Hebrews says is a stronger assurance, a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. He called, they called, the book of Hebrews calls Jesus a new priest who brings about a new and better covenant. You know, think about all those things we just mentioned about the jealousy of God, the forgiveness of God, the justice of God, and then read the gospels and see the person of Jesus, God in the flesh made visible to the invisible, who shows certainty of hope of God's loving jealously in a real person pursuing us in love, 
laying down himself for us, promising and then accomplishing forgiveness for all people, and then bringing about the justice of all in one collision on the cross, accomplishing all of God's purposes of condemning sin and judgment and death forever in one decisive blow through one person. You see, you know, we can read Psalm 79 with much less excuse than Asaph. And yet so often we have so less faith than Asaph and the people of Israel. But we get to see the finishing of the cry. We get to see Jesus as the accomplisher of all of this. And all this has been passed with a certain hope to this new community, the church, you. And so in one real sense, this whole Psalm comes back to us and says, actually the church can be something that nowhere else can be. It can be a place where there's no more other, no more us versus them, but a beautiful togetherness. You see, we are all wandering sheep as under God's leading as the shepherd. We all like sheep have gone astray, gone our own way. It's not about being naturally good or naturally bad. We all have gone astray and we all need to be brought back, whether Israel or Babylon. We're all sinners in need of grace and saving. And the church can be a place for all people. Jesus said in in John 10, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. He was talking to Israelites. He says, I have other sheep who are not of this fold and I must bring them in also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd bringing together Israel and Babylon, Israel and the nations, people like you and me into the sheep pen to be his followers. Because Jesus is the true shepherd. He is the one who laid down his life for the many. He's the one who pursued us as the one wandering sheep and left the 99 safe ones. He came relentlessly after us because he's jealous for you because he wants to achieve your full forgiveness. He wants you to find your exclusive relationship in him because he can offer you what no one else can. We're bound together by this forgiveness because we've all been forgiven the same way by the blood of Jesus, not by our good works, but by him alone. We are fully, freely, scandalously people of forgiveness. We forgive others because we have been forgiven so much. And so therefore we, we look at others who we need to forgive and we take their debt on ourselves and we seek reconciliation with all people. Even the Babylonians of our own lives, the enemies, now we treat as friends and we pray for them. And so I, I really believe that Psalm 79 is actually a grand call to be a community that is unlike any other in the world because Jesus has unified us through his blood. You can look at Babylon and Israel, the nations, your enemies, your difficulties, and come together and say, actually a new community has been formed. A new hope has been given, a better anchor for your soul. And so we actually can find hope in a brutal Psalm and move forward with a sure and steadfast hope. So as we finish, I just want to reemphasize Romans 8.28. God works all things together for good, for those that love him, for those that, that feel his jealous love for you and are called according to his purpose. 
And we're in this together as a redeemed community of forgiven and forgiving people. Amen. We close us in prayer. We'll sing one final song. Gracious God, give us hope in times of fear. Direct us to Jesus when we're uncertain about what we're going through. I thank you for this psalm of Asaph that, that is so brutally honest and it, and it so vividly uh, describes so often what our own souls can feel, the cries of our own heart. But help us to, to, help us to see that those things have been fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And may we see him shining brightly in our own lives today. Help, help us to see Jesus more, more lovingly and more beautifully today than ever before as one who is jealous for us and who has given us his full self so we can be free. It's in his name we pray, amen.